0: Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Battles podcast. My name is Carl Eilert, and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. In the last couple of episodes we talked about the fighting in the year 1914 on both the western and eastern fronts. Today we move on to the year 1915 when Turkey and Italy to the war. The first months of fighting in the First World War had seen no major breakthrough from any side. The Germans had captured about 10% of France and reached within 60 miles of Paris, then reached a stalemate as both sides fortified their positions, with great long lines of trenches running from Belgium to the Swiss border. Russia had captured the region of Galicia from Austria-Hungary, but had been pushed out of East Prussia by the Germans, and an attempted Austrian invasion of Serbia had been a dismal failure. The Germans had originally planned to complete victory quickly, but now found themselves stuck In a war on two fronts. Furthermore, their ally Austria-Hungary had performed badly, yet Germany still had the advantage of being Europe's greatest military and industrial power and she had the most professional army of all of the warring nations. The army's heavy mobile artillery and armaments and its efficient communications and railway networks gave it the capacity to transfer forces around the various theatres quickly. Never before had conflict of such scale been seen. No longer was war a struggle between armies, but a fight to the death between whole societies, involving also those at home, thousands of miles from the fighting. The concept of total war was invented to describe the new idea of an entire Country's economy being directed towards war, factories converted to produce munitions and weapons, and people expected to endure terrible hardship as food supplies became increasingly limited. It was also a war characterised by new ways of fighting. Trenches had existed in other conflicts, but never on such a monumental scale, across such vast stretches of territory. The scale of the killing was staggering, the death toll made worse by the technological change. Old ways of fighting, such as cavalry charges, were consigned to history. For all sides, the war was no longer just a traditional struggle for power, but increasingly seen as a conflict of ideologies. In Britain, while Conservatives saw it as a defence of the British Empire, Liberals saw it as a struggle for democracy and the rule of law against German militarism, whose mistreatment of Belgium gave a foretaste of what to expect at the hands of a victorious Germany. Official propaganda played on the emotions already being expressed by the press. The degree of popular hysteria prompted the royal family to rename themselves from the House of Hanover, or more accurately, of saxe coburg Goethe. To the House of Windsor. German sheepdogs were rebranded as Alsatians and Wagner's music was no longer to be heard. German intellectuals, on the other hand, depicted their country as fighting against Slavic barbarism, French decadence and English materialism. War took place on the seas as well as on land. The Germans had invested heavily in naval warfare in the previous years and had built up a formidable fleet of destroyers which had contributed to tensions with Britain. They also built the first military submarines or U-boats and developed the use of mines, a potent weapon against all forms of shipping. The Germans were still in no position to challenge the British Grand Fleet, who remained the unrivalled global naval power, but they deterred the British from establishing a close blockade of German ports. Instead, the British deployed a distant blockade, blocking the 20 mile wide English Channel and also the 200 mile gap between the Orkney Islands in Northern Scotland and Norway. German ships were therefore cut off from the oceans of the world, restricted to the Baltic and North Seas a few German ships who were at sea when war broke out, known as Commerce Raiders, were quickly hunted down, although not before one squadron destroyed a British detachment off the coast of Chile in November 1914, to be destroyed in its turn by the Falkland Islands a month later. German cruisers bombarded English coastal towns during the winter of 1914-1915, to 1915, and there was a clash on the Dogger Bank In January but otherwise both fleets remained inactive. The only German ships regularly used in combat were the U-boats. Early in the war they would surface to fire on British merchant vessels but allow the crews of targeted ships to disembark into lifeboats before opening fire and sinking their ships. This changed in February 1915 when the Germans changed their policy to one of unrestricted Submarine warfare in waters around Britain. Ships found there were now liable to be fired on and sunk without prior warning. On the 6th of May 1915, a German U boat sank the British luxury liner, the Lusitania, off the coast of Ireland on a voyage from New York. The vessel was certainly carrying contraband in the shape of ammunition, and a German consulate had warned American citizens that they travelled on it at their own risk. But nevertheless, 128 of them did, and most of them died, together with over a 1,000 fellow passengers. American public opinion was outraged, and protests became so violent that the German Navy were compelled to end their policy of firing on sight, and they withdrew altogether from the Atlantic and North Sea. The German navy, for all the heavy financial and political sacrifices incurred in building it up, became just a bystander in the war. Germany was therefore cut off from her colonies around the world, although these were small in number compared with those of the French and British. German-owned islands in the Pacific were quickly seized by Britain's allies, the Japanese, as was the port of Tsingtao, their foothold on the Chinese mainland. Austria and New Zealand easily took Samoa, Papua and the Solomon Islands. In West Africa, French and British colonial troops cleared Togoland and German Cameroon and South African forces captured German Southwest Africa, later Namibia. The only German colony which successfully held out was Tanzania, whose garrison repulsed an attempted landing by Anglo-Indian troops. Back in Europe, there were several smaller states who were still deciding whether or not to enter the war. Among them was the Ottoman Empire, whose leadership was divided whether to form an alliance with the Entente Allies or with the Central Powers, or to remain neutral. At the outbreak of the First World War, the Ottoman Empire was in a state of chaotic contraction. It was still recovering from the impact of defeat in the Balkan Wars its government appeared unstable and prone to violent change turkish nationalism and the drive towards modernization of the state competed against pan-islamism and regional governors and non-turkic communities fought the attempts of the government in constantinople at their centralization of power the recent Balkan wars had exposed how feeble the once proud ottoman military had become since then however its leader Enver Pasha had carried out a purge of the officer corps and in so doing helped further increase German influence in Constantinople. The British had initially taken a relaxed view to Berlin's growing friendship with the Ottomans. When Russia became an ally, however, the straits linking the Mediterranean with the Black Sea adopted a new strategic importance. A third of all Russia's exports passed through the straits, to say nothing of the importance, militarily, of St. Petersburg being able to send ships into the Mediterranean and beyond. Relations between London and Constantinople remained cordial until the summer of 1914. Winston Churchill, First Lord of the Admiralty, ordered the seizure of two warships built for the Sultan's Navy in British shipyards, aware that the Turkish government was likely to be allied with Germany and could well use them against Russia. Having been paid for by public subscription, there was widespread anger at this act among the Ottomans. By chance, two German warships evaded British pursuit in the Mediterranean on the outbreak of war and cast anchor off Constantinople. Seen as recompense for the two ships denied them in Britain, they helped persuade the Turkish government to declare war on Russia, and on the 29th of October, the German ships, now flying the Turkish flag, bombarded the Black Sea port of Edessa. At the same time, the Turks took the offensive against the Russians in the Caucasus. In response to requests from Russia for assistance against the Ottomans, Churchill persuaded his colleagues and the British government of the benefits of a campaign to force passage through the Dardanelles into the Sea of Marmara and into bombard Constantinople, and so force the Ottomans to sue for peace. For one thing it would reopen communications with Russia, freeing her to export the grain that played so vital a part in her economy. Also a new front could be opened in the Balkans to help the Serbs resist against the Austrians possibly persuading the Greeks or Bulgarians to join the Entente Alliance, and in addition this would prevent Germany from constructing a submarine base at Constantinople, stop her expanding into the Middle East and act as a dummy run for operations against Germany in the Baltic and North Seas. The Anglo-French campaign however was very poorly organised. Their naval forces were turned back by enemy minefields and so they called in land forces to capture Gallipoli, a peninsula on the Dardanelles. Troops were committed piecemeal, suffered heavy losses in landing and could then only cling on to narrow beachheads, overlooked by strong Turkish defences. By October it was clear that the operation had been a total failure, redeemed only by the courage and endurance of the troops especially those from Australia and New Zealand, and by the successful evacuation at the end of the year. The campaign in Gallipoli was an adventure launched by the British without proper consideration of the local tactical situation, underestimating the strength of the opposition and based on a hugely optimistic assessment of the military capabilities of their own troops. Crucially, vital resources had been drawn away from where it really mattered. For the Ottomans, it was a great strategic victory, and it was here that Mustafa Kemal, later Ataturk, the first President of Turkey, would become a legend. The Ottoman soldiers had shown tremendous tenacity at the defence of Gallipoli, and suffered great casualties. According to some estimates, 90,000 dead, and 165,000 wounded, far more than the Allies. Another new entrant to the war in 1915 was Italy. Although part of a triple alliance with Germany and Austro-Hungary, the Italians were always unlikely to back Vienna in any war as they coveted parts of the Empire's territory in Trento and Trieste. By declaring war on Serbia without consulting with Rome, Italy's treaty obligations did not apply, they claimed, and so as Europe mobilised its armies, Italy announced its neutrality. Many Italians thought they should remain neutral, including recent Prime Minister Giovanni Giolitti and a majority of deputies in the chamber. They believed that Italy was economically too fragile to sustain a major conflict, particularly so soon after the invasion of Libya. In January 1915, Giolitti published a letter in which he expressed the opinion that much could be obtained by bargaining with both sides to stay out of the war, but Prime Minister Salandra negotiated in secrecy with the British and French governments on the one hand and with Germany and Austria on the other to see what price Italy could secure for intervention. The Germans brought heavy pressure on the Austrian Allies to concede Italian-speaking territories in exchange for Italy joining on their side. In May 1915, Vienna reluctantly agreed, but it was too late. Italians had already signed the secret Treaty of London with the Entente Allies, by which they were promised all of the Italian-speaking regions south of the Alps, together with German-speaking south Tyrol, and wide areas of Slovenia and Dalmatia, where Italians were in a definite minority. Public opinion was sharply divided in Italy between the interventionists and the neutralists. The great majority of the working classes and peasants wanted peace, but the interventionist minorities were more combative. They were disproportionately stronger in large cities, where they drew most of their support from students and the middle classes. They condemned Giolitti and his supporters for betraying the ideals of the Risorgimento by failing to take the opportunity for territorial expansion. They argued that fighting in the war would regenerate the nation, and it might even be some kind of spiritual experience that would wipe out the stains of past Italian defeats against the Austrians, such as at Lisa and Costosa in 1866. A newspaper called Popolo d'Italia was founded as a mouthpiece for those campaigning for war by Benito Mussolini, the future Prime Minister of Italy. On the 24th of May, Italy declared war on Austria and opened up a new front in the war. Her Commander in Chief, General Luigi Cardona, spent the next two years launching suicidal attacks in the mountains beyond the river Isonzo, losing almost a million men in the process. One more front, which opened up in 1915, was in Macedonia the Allies were keen to deter Bulgaria from attacking Serbia. With the Austrian navy a threat in the Adriatic, the only feasible base for the launch of a campaign in the Balkans was the Greek port of Salonika. At the outbreak of the Great War, Greece remained neutral, although with a bitter internal political battle over which side it should favour. King Constantine favoured the Central Powers, having been educated and carried out his military service in Germany, and being married to Kaiser Wilhelm's sister, Sophia. But the Greek Prime Minister Eleutherios Venizelos had long favoured the Allies and saw their intervention as an opportunity to expand Greek influence in the Balkans. As the threat to Serbia became more acute, the Allies pressured the Greeks into accepting a deployment of troops in Greece. The first Allied soldiers arrived at Salonika on the 5th of October 1915, prompting a violent political disagreement among the Greek leaders over what was a flagrant breach of their neutrality. Venizelos was forced to resign and a prolonged period of instability ensued, but in the end the Greeks offered no assistance to the Allies' presence at Salonika. My name is Carl Reilert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at Carl that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week I will talk about the events of 1915 both on the Eastern and Western Front, where the vicious fighting continued. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye.